3CR, radio that's independent, progressive and making a difference. Welcome to The Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald. A huge day in uh, my world. Uh, we were page 11 in The Age. Clay Lucas wrote up a, uh, a great piece on uh, the title was something along the line of uh, routine corruption leads to land rezoning windfalls. And uh, you, hopefully regular listeners uh, noticed some of the keywords there. And it featured Cameron Murray, who we flew down from Brisbane to give this presentation with, uh, yeah, it was a medium-sized crowd, uh, great number of uh, academics in the in the audience so so that was important and we recorded it so we're going to have a listen to Cameron Murray for the third time this year um, this report is so hot academics around the world are talking about the uh, uh, importance of this methodology in finally being able to systemically quantify the influence of insiders within the property game within government and how Seeming innocuous relationships uh, add up over time and it's not so much political donations, it's more this social capital insiders build up that leads to these rezonings. So there is a science to it. I've pulled out some of the heavy sort of uh, theory uh, Cameron was mentioning during the presentation, but I look forward to getting a YouTube up soon. So imagine you're looking at maps in a few of these uh, discussion points, but uh, he's very clear. Hopefully you can uh, sit back and enjoy some of these insights because all around the world, uh, academics are going to be looking at this. So very exciting to have this here on 3CR Radio, broadcasting out of Melbourne, Australia. Subscribe and support 3CR. Thanks, Carl. Uh, okay, thanks everyone for having me today. What I want to do first is, we're all from quite different backgrounds. I want to get us all onto the same page um, and thinking about... Uh, the question, what is it about zoning and planning systems that enable favouritism to happen? I mean, ultimately, planning systems just define property rights for people and property rights lead to market trades and good outcomes. What we have to be thinking about is a change in the planning system being a change in the allocation of property rights, giving some people new property rights and excluding others or taking from them to give to others. So when we think about... uh, zoning through this property rights lens, we end up at this point where uh, rezoning decisions are ultimately this discretionary political decision about who gets what, who's got rights and who who doesn't. And so that discretionary political decision that happens routinely across the country provides a real scope for this exchange of favours within the political system. Now, the other industry where this discretion about who gets new property rights arises is in mining where rights to extract resources and to explore for minerals are essentially at the discretion of the political party of the day. And, you know, the evidence from the recent New South Wales inquiries suggests that, yeah, property and mining uh, (laughs) probably have some kind of favouritism going on. We can also think about this favouritism and the effect, the accumulated effect on the distribution of wealth by looking at the rich list, so Australia's wealthiest people. Okay? 60% of them in Queensland made their money in property and mining, which is a little bit unexpected. I mean, it's very, it's, there's not much technological innovation. It doesn't seem to be rewarding entrepreneurship and innovation, expanding the capacity of the economy. It seems to be a lot to do with who got the favours because of these routine discretionary decisions. 
So my PhD is about studying these decisions, who gets favours and who doesn't. And what, we, what, what I needed to do to study it was to find one clean decision where I had identifiable winners and identifiable losers who could have been winners but for some kind of lobbying effort, some kind of investment in relationships, political donations. And so in Queensland, we're fortunate enough to have a nice case of the Urban Land Development Authority uh, to use um, as a nice clean case study. And what we can do with this clean case study is answer three main questions. Is there systematic favouritism? Can we statistically show that you're more likely to be favoured because of particular um, political activities? Can we can ask the question, how is favouritism supported? What activities actually most determine who gets favoured? And we can ask a third question is, how much is favouritism worth? How big are these allocations? You know, is it a, is, you know, a few million here, a few million there? Maybe we shouldn't get too fussed about it. It's just a, you know, a few gents having a little good time. Um, or is it you know, a billion here, a billion there? Okay. So I use this ULDA, which is the Urban Land Development Authority in Queensland, as a, as a natural experiment to look at winners and losers what activities they, they undertook to get political favours and whether they actually work. Unfortunately, we need a fair bit of, um, a fair bit of context, institutional context for this, and that's what this planning timeline is all about. Okay? There are two main uh, state-level planning tools in Queensland, uh, and I have to start right at the beginning, the South East Queensland Regional Plan. So that was a plan drafted in 2004 uh, during a bit of a property construction boom that was designed to coordinate the plans of local councils so that the state would impose a, an urban footprint and the council's plans would have to comply with the state-level plan. But this council still made the approvals. In 2007, the property boom was still continuing and the response, as, as we often see, is that maybe it's zoning that's the problem. That's what's causing house prices. What we should do is we should get the state to release more land for housing development. So this housing affordability strategy uh, foreshadowed the implementation of this Urban Land Development Authority Act, which was drafted in four months, um, and it created the statutory body that had the power to take all planning um, controls from local councils in areas that it could self-designate. So it was this little body, and it could say, hmm, maybe we should rezone here, and then it could take absolute control of that area. Now, the intention of, of, of the ULDA was primarily to release underutilised state land into private hands and create more dense urban infill. Uh, but what it got used for is, it, it is often to just rezone privately owned land and increase the value, increase the density, decrease the, the cost of approval. Okay, and out of, so out of the 14 areas that they declared over the life of the Urban Land Development Authority, which was dissolved... In 2012, when Campbell Newman came into power, they took control of 14 areas, six of which were almost exclusively privately owned land. They weren't underutilised state land being released to the private sector. Um, and the more interesting part about the ULDA is the areas didn't comply with the previous plan. So already we've got in mind that there's some strange things happening. This is what the regional plan basically looks like. Okay, that's southeast Queensland. Pink is the urban footprint, 
Yellow are these investigation areas where the councils may propose to uh, have future development. Okay, this is the original 2004 version. So let me take a then close look at what happened through this time period. If we zoom in on this parcel here, this is down in Bow Desert, these dark black outlines are the ULDA areas that were ultimately taken under the power of the ULDA. This one here is Greater Flagstone, these three obscurely shaped parcels of land, and this one's Yarrabilba. Okay, this is, this is Ripley Valley and this is Caloundra South. I've got a lot more context in the report about some history here, but I just want to show, particularly looking at the top row, how, this, how these two plans changed over time. How could anyone know, for example, if you bought land here, knowing you're in the investigation area, uh, what, you know, how could you know that this would be ultimately declared in the ULEA, but this wasn't, or this? And if we go a little bit further through time, we can see the various, the evolution of the regional plan conforming to what ultimately got declared by the Urban Land Development Authority. So we can kind of see that um, the expectation should have been somewhere out in this area and then over time we hit on this particular spot. Um, why is that important? Because one argument against this method is, well, perhaps big connected developers are better at anticipating where urban expansion will occur. And I just point to this and go, well, how could you anticipate being in this peculiar shaped thing and not out, outside of it? I mean, where do you get that information from? So that's the importance of having, having this, uh, this context. So these, these shapes make very little economic sense, don't really comply with the plan. But there's more. <laughs> okay, so this is, there's more. Why is this a good example of favouritism? This is an internal document from Lendlease, who happened to own or have an option on the Yarrabilba site uh, prior to its rezoning. They were denied three times by the council for the approvals they sought prior to the ULDA taking control of it. What happened, the ULDA was often um, found itself in conflict with local councils. Here's Lendlease showing how they're flexible and innovative and collaborative with them, which is kind of an you know, in an ideal world, maybe that's the case, but, you know, you can't be too... This is a signs of regulatory capture. And the other questionable thing here, here remember, ULDA was to, designed to fast-track housing development. What's this 30-year development scheme? What kind of fast-tracking is that? It doesn't make any sense. Where's the incentive to fast-track and release? You're basically just supporting Lend-Lease's business plan. And, in fact, that was the case. It turned out that the former director of major projects South East Queensland for Lend-Lease ended up as the CEO of the Urban Land Development Authority, made approval decisions in Yarrabilba uh, that improperly considered the company's profitability as a, as, a, as a criteria for assessment. We will consider in our assessment plans that must be profitable for the company. So Logan City Council took uh, uh, ULDA to the Supreme Court about that. And in Caloundra South, the Mayor Bob Abbott, uh, let me give you his exact words, um, said the ULDA taking control of their land, which they had denied uh, approvals for, for 15 years prior, because it's very low-lying floodplain riparian area next to Pumasone Passage, which is the fish breeding ground for Moreton Bay. 
They've denied approvals for 15 years. Um, what did he say? There's considerable contrivance and considerable discussions behind the scenes involved in that. And, and another, another snippet before we get into the nitty-gritty, because I'm just making the case that this is a useful event to study. Paul Eagles, the CEO of the ULDA, who was formerly Lend-Lease, on his biography on the Urban Land Development Authority's um, website, it doesn't actually mention his former employer. It says, during his career, before starting at the ULDA, Paul held senior positions with national development companies working on large master plan communities. Very suspicious. Um, oh, and remember I said there were 14 areas declared. Six of those were privately owned land. The other eight were state-owned land that they were to release to the private sector. Now you'd think, that's great. That's what the government should do. They should upzone, sell it to the private developer, get, recover the higher values to use for infrastructure and other public services. You'd think that's what you'd do. But that's not what the ULDA did. The ULDA instead had an opaque system of selecting preferred partner developers to go into an alliance contract to hold hands as equity partners and build buildings. Essentially, if you get chosen, you get the power of the ULDA to support the profitability of your development. So, let me just, let me just pause here because the ULDA was rapidly created, was given a great deal of control to take all planning powers away from councils, declared areas in shapes that made little economic sense, conflicted with the previous state plan, and were already planned for development by many councils in any case. There was conflict with the councils. The CEO had a vested interest, and even when they did release state land into private hands, they did so with an opaque selection process of partner develop developers. So I think I've almost answered the first question of, is there favouritism? Um, which, which brings me to my next point. What more is needed? <laughs> I mean, the evidence is, is, is pretty stunning. So what we haven't seen, though, is all the political, politically connected landowners who didn't get rezoned, who missed out. And we, we didn't get to see the unconnected landowners who did get rezoned. So we can't really get, have a good statistical argument that there's favouritism without those sort of controls. How is favouritism supported? We don't really know. We kind of got this revolving door idea that's just one guy. What about everybody else? What is it? Is it donations? Is it just the revolving door? And how much are these favours worth? And that's where we launch into the, to the data. What do we need? What sort of data do we need to answer these questions? We need a sample of landowners who got the favourable decision and who didn't. So this map is the Ripley Valley uh, ULDA area in bold. The blue dots are the sample of landowners of undeveloped sites inside the rezoned area, sized by the size of their lot and located on their street address at their front gate. The red are lots of land that didn't get rezoned but could have had the shape of this rezoned area instead come all the way out to the highway and all the way out here. I mean, there's no particular reason for that shape if we recall the yellow investigation area is much, much bigger. Okay. And if, uh, in Ripley, there was a yellow investigation area right here that missed out. Um, this is Yarra Bilba. This is Lendlease's site. All these guys across the street. What's wrong with this land here? What's, what's wrong with over here on this street? Why, why wasn't that rezoned and only these sites? 
So these are our counterfactual groups in, in red. And here's the bizarrely shaped, I don't know um, what this shape is all about, but I can tell you that this top parcel here is owned by a large superannuation account, and this one here is owned by someone else who's very well connected. <laughs> um, what's, what's wrong with all the in-between parts? Surely if you have a case that it's efficient to rezone, it's efficient to rezone even more than what you did. And you should have included everybody else as well. So this sampling, um, this sampling method, I, I had to get some IT people to, to write some code to scrape the data out of RP data because the, this, the titles office doesn't sell data in bulk to the public. Um, so this was a little bit of an effort. I then had to screen out the undeveloped sites, uh, screen out the developed sites from inside and the developed sites from outside and leave undeveloped sites. Uh, I had to screen out uh, plots of land uh, on the outside that weren't at least as big as some of the plots of land on the inside in case you wanted to have the argument, well, it's only efficient if you rezone land of a certain size for some reason. So I screen all those all those lots out by those criteria and we end up with this sort of sample of landowners. We end up with 274 lots inside the six areas that I study, 918 outside, 1192 parcels of land altogether with 1137 unique owners. We're listening to Cameron Murray presenting Clean Money in a Dirty System today at RMIT with the Centre of Urban Research. If you visit the Earthsharing Facebook account, you see links to the event, um, the uh, big article in The Age today. And uh, if you visit prosper.org.au, you'll also see links to the original paper and... uh, yeah, a bit of chatter about just this importance of uh, rezoning and who makes all of the gains in a world where inequality just streams ahead. And we're soon going to hear Cameron talking about the difficulties of attaining this data and how what should be in the public interest is just so difficult to reach. So Cameron Murray, follow him on Twitter at Rumpelstatskin. Let's go back to the presentation. For industry associations, maybe it's just a really well-organised industry group. So I scraped all the members for the Property Council of Australia and the Urban Development Institute of Australia in Queensland in 2012 and in 2008 from an internet archive. What I use that for is also a dummy variable for landowners who are members of the industry groups and who aren't. And I also map all those people to each other to create a clique in the network, a world where everybody knows each other. Okay, so becoming an in, getting into the industry association buys you relationships to everybody as well. In Queensland, we have a database of former politicians, uh, of which there are 171. What I wanted to use this database for was to find out all the children and the spouses of politicians to put them in. The main problem with this database is you self-report your family. So all the people with nothing to hide had their children and their spouse and their maiden name of their wife and wife's employer or all the people who had something to hide just said, yep, I was the minister, goodbye. Okay. So I couldn't use family members systematically, but I used the politicians and put them in there. And if they nominated their employers, I put them in. The ULDA board and staff, as we know, there's at least one shady character on there. Uh, I actually know a few other people there personally, so there's more than one. 35 staff. I scraped all the 36 former companies that they'd declared in any, any 
document on the website. I scraped every document connected to the website, every PDF, every link, every page of their website and searched that um, and conveniently did that prior to disbanding the, the, the group. And they got 36 former companies. So then the ULDA board members were also matched through this former employer as a relationship network. For all the landowners, another lesson trying to do this research, I had originally made a request for ASIC for the 1137 landowners for all the, all the searches in bulk in an electronic form so that I could see for individuals what companies they, boards they were on and what companies they owned. And for corporates, I could see the reverse. Um, ASIC's lawyers came back to me and said they're not allowed to do that sort of thing. Uh, and we had a little bit of back and forth and it turned out there's a sneaky clause in their act that allows them to refuse access if it has the potential to generate a mailing list. So I'm not sure in whose interest ASIC is operating, but I mean, I could have used the yellow pages or the internet to make a mailing list. So what I had to do is settle for the 174 landowners in the sample who were company landowners and I had to do them one by one, order it with the credit, university credit card online, get the PDF emailed to me and scrape the data back out of that. So, <laughs> you know, a lot of our institutions aren't really, doesn't seem like they're set up in the interest of public information. Uh, so I did all the corporate landowners, ended up with uh, 1,795 relationships to members of the board of director and company secretaries and so forth. So what am I going to do with all this information? I map it all into a network. Now what we have, remember, is relationships from industry group members. We, we have relationships from company directors and companies. We have relationships from lobbyist clients to lobbyists and to other clients. We have relationships from the ULDA board to their former employers and so forth. What I've done is essentially compress all of those relationships and flattened it into one network with all entities, individuals and companies. 13,762 entities that end up in the data set. All the politicians, everybody else. Um, there are 260,000 relationships. Of those 13,700, 6,500 are connected to each other in the large components. So this is just one part. There are other parts that aren't attached to this part in the network, if you can imagine it. And that main component has 98% of those 270,000 relationships in it. So what we have is this large group of well-connected people and a whole bunch of other people. <laughs> um, and what we'll, I'll tell you in a minute what we're going to do with this. What I've got over here is I cluster this up because you can't really make much sense of this into groups that are well connected. And I'm, for each of these clusters, these coloured groups, um, I tell you how many of the nodes, how many of the people in that group who are landowners are lobbyist clients, how many are industry group members, and how many edges, how many relationships are from their corporate relationships, from their boards of directors and so forth. So in this big one here, we've got 77% of the landowners in this large component are lobbyist clients. Um, not many are members of the industry groups, and there's quite a, f there's quite a few corporate relationships. 
which is quite interesting when we look up in this group here, which is very central to the whole network as well, where 25% of the landowners in that little group are lobbyist clients, 62% are industry group members, but hardly any corporate relationships. So you can kind of see there's this trade-off between having corporate relationships and doing and, and, um, and being, employing a lobbyist or, or being in the industry group. There's this kind of substitution uh, for the method at which you use to become connected. And we can see that again over here. We have uh, t more corporate relationships in this group, lots of industry groups, but nobody, nobody really lobbies in that group. What are we going to do with this? We have to think about what use this network is to us. We want to think, well, what characteristic of this massive network is going to be useful in giving us an explanatory story about favoritism? And, this, and this, the, the basic stories in, in networks are that the value of your position in a network comes from potentially two places. The first is the structural holes, whether you bridge relationships between two people who otherwise couldn't be connected without going through you. So you end up with a monopoly on, on the information flow. Camera Murray repeating Camera Murray today at the Clean Money in a Dirty System seminar at RMIT. Um, check out his work at ckmurray.blogspot.com. ckmurray.blogspot.com. Let's go back for the last few minutes. What can we do? I get asked this every time I talk about this research. So I'll... I'll um, we can discuss this more during questions. So my first point, and the rest of my PhD actually looks at, in more detail at how relationships support the implicit exchange of favours through time. And so there's a very strong story about these relationships being the supporting mechanism for this trade. And what we really need to do is disrupt the favour exchange. So I'm thinking here of cooling off periods. In Queensland, we have a cooling off period for two years for politicians. They can't be professional lobbyists for two years. That's great. Do you know how many former politicians work for developers? All of them. You can leave your office in Parliament on Friday and work for Stockland on Monday. As long as you're not a professional lobbyist and you're an employee or a director or whatever position they give you. Every developer I've worked for had a fixer, someone connected whose job was just to sit there and be well connected. Okay? Transparency. It was really hard to get all this information. ASIC wasn't helpful. The titles office wasn't helpful. The Office of uh, State Revenue actually keeps track of the hierarchy of landowners, of which companies own which, so they can administer land taxes when companies sell the company that owns land rather than the land. And of course, they can't tell me, they can't say a word. It's all private because it's, it's information collected in administering the Tax Act. And I'm thinking for disrupting the favour exchange, the reverse is also true. You want cooling off periods, but you also don't want to be employing people from the industry that they regulate. There's this kind of myth that you must know the industry to regulate it, but you're essentially buying somebody's relationships and going, oh, put, you know, what are they, put them in charge of their own industry. I'm just shocked that anyone thinks that is a good idea, but we disguise it as, well, we need industry knowledge. You know, what about employing foreigners? Why don't we have a German planning expert leading the planning review in Queensland? Why do we have a former Stockland director? Don't know. Anyway, the other thing is to remove the honeypot. It's too much money. We're giving away these new rights for free. That's a problem. We could sell them. Could have made $710 million. 
from the ULBA by selling these. We could have um, some countervailing political interest by electoral input and vote on which areas should be rezoned or where we should expand the city. We can have better administered betterment taxes. We can have better land taxes to just shrink this gap. And we can also have timing fees, is what I called them. But remember, Stockland had their 30-year plan. Why? We, we just gave them all this free new property rights because we're worried about expensive housing, and then we're letting them sit on a vacant plot of land for 30 years. Seems ridiculous. What we should do is have fees. If you develop by year three, you, you have a, a fee of 20,000 per lot. If you develop by year five, it's 50,000. If you develop by year nine, it's this many. And make them actually build something. And we need to challenge this myth, this you, you don't want to rezone grandma's property. It's, it's everywhere. All right, and that's all we have time for. From Cameron Murray, today's event, Clean Money in a Dirty System. And I'm looking forward to seeing the ramifications of this report as we see around Australia uh, the, the interest in uh, windfall gains growing and the level of corruption that's been highlighted through New South Wales. Goodness me, I'd love to see this study done in New South Wales where we've had the ICAC investigation into corruption that's uh, rolled some seven or eight major politicians in New South Wales and uh, that was on the back of the 2000...